Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We do praise you for just being an awesome God, for working in our lives, Father, and being here tonight. I pray, Father, that we would always love, adore, lift up, and appreciate your name. Father, we need you. We're dependent upon you, Father. And help us, Father, to receive from you. Be here tonight. Open our hearts and our minds, Father, uh, to uh, show us uh, our walk that we need to have before you. And uh, we just give you all the praise and all the glory, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you can remember, the way the story outline goes was we had Elijah, the prophet, butt heads with Jezebel, the uh, wicked queen mother, if you would, married to Ahab, and uh, she was one that was bringing in idolatry. And in the midst of those two butting heads, Elijah, the prophet, Jezebel, the woman, God told Elijah to do three things. He wanted to appoint Hazel, king of Aram, the enemy. He wanted to appoint Elisha to replace Elijah. We talked about how that he was replaceable. And then we said he was to appoint Jehu to be king over Israel. And it's important for us to remember at this point that Israel is the northern ten tribes, if you would. And then the two southern tribes are called Judah. And there's actually two countries with two separate kings. And we've watched civil war between the two, and there's friction, and sometimes they try and work together, the north and the south. But all the garbage with Jezebel was up to the north. And Jehu then, the prophet comes in and anoints him to be king, and he goes out to battle. And just at that time, the king of the south, uh, Ahaziah, and uh, uh, this other king from the north, it was Jehaz, Jehaziah. We're up to the north. Jehu comes up and puts an arrow through both of them and kills them both on the spot. And Jehu, as we were, if you were with us last week, was a vicious killer. He slaughtered everybody. He had a big party and says, Everybody that wants to worship Baal, the false god, come hang out over here. Got them all together in a big room and slaughtered them all. And he was really the henchman, if you would, of God. And so, if you would, it leaves us in a precarious situation where we see... The king of the north is killed. The king of the south is killed on the same day. Jehu is going to become the king of the north. And we're picking up the theme then of what's going on down to the south. We're picking up what's happening. And if you can remember, God busted Jehu because he didn't completely finish the job. His heart wasn't all the way in it. Jehu only did what he was told to do. And what it leaves is a vacuum down to the south. We're going to see where... Uh, uh, Athalia, that would be pronounced correct, Athalia, a queen mother, she's going to take over in this vacuum of her son dying. Her son was the king, she was the queen mother, and it's interesting enough as it says, when Athalia, the mother of Ahaziah, and Ahaziah was the guy that died by Jehu as well, she saw that her son was dead, she rose and she destroyed all the royal offspring. So she's going to go and she's going to kill all the rest of her children, all the brothers of Ahaziah, and even Ahaziah's own kids. That would be her grandkids. 
So she's going to be the queen mother figure, and she's going to say, well, I'm tired of the queen mother figure. I'm just going to be the queen. And she's going to go in, and she's playing the uh, black widow spider, and she's going to devour everyone around her. And I can't think of a more retrobate thing to do than to kill your own children. And here, she's going to do just that. She wants the throne. She doesn't want to be... Uh, we talked about how Jezebel was really the woman that was behind the scene. She had her son or her husband. They were both puppets to the wants of Jezebel. And as we understand the storyline, and I know it gets really confusing, and you guys will get bored if we explain all the things that happen here, but basically, you're seeing that uh, Athalia is going to be uh, the daughter of Jezebel and Ahab. And then she marries the king of Judah to the south, and then they have a child, and then he becomes king, and then he dies in battle when he was messing around with the king of the north. And now this is actually Jezebel's daughter. And she's sitting down there, and if you want to go through all the research and dig it all up, we can dig up all those things in Second Chronicles but I'm saving you a little bit of thought, and you can say, okay, here's Jezebel's daughter. And it's, if anything, she's now going to sit down and says, I want the throne. I'm going to be the ruler, not the mother or the mother-in-law who's pulling the strings behind the scenes. She's ruling it, and what she does, she arises, she destroys all the royal offspring. So that's just what a, well, I guess a black widow would be someone that, because uh, the black widow spider is the one that, uh, once she mates with the male, she eats the male so she can have plenty of food to lay all the eggs. And we always think about what a disgusting thing. You don't ever want to trust somebody like that. And here, here's this lady. She's now, when she realizes that her son was killed, who was supposed to be the king, you can probably say she's going, enough of this. I'm going to sit down and run this country. But obviously in the sons that are over there, we're going to see this other guy says, but Jehoshaphat, Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, so this would be uh, a sister-in-law, if you would, sister of uh, Ahaziah, she's going to take this guy, Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him from among the king's sons, who were being put to death, and placed him in his, uh, and his nurse in the bedroom. Uh, so they hid him from Athaliah, and he was not put to death. So as the Axe is starting to fly and all the heads of the king's sons are starting to be chopped off once again. This nursemaid turns around, takes one of them, and we're going to find out the kid's only one year old. He's going to be a little infant. And uh, for six years, they're going to raise him away from this woman so that uh, somehow or another, the seed is going to be preserved. And it is interestingly enough, this is putting it all in perspective, God came down and told King David, said, your son shall always sit on the throne. And we know that that lineage of King David goes all the way through. That seed is going to be preserved all the way till we come to Mary and Joseph, who are going to be the lineage of Christ. And so it's an interesting story to see how close of a hair it is from being whisked away of a one-year-old child that survived from this wicked woman. And uh, God yet will preserve, even if it means just down to that last little nitty-gritty. And so this one child is going to be preserved. So he was hidden, verse 3, with her in the house of the Lord six years, 
while Athaliah was reigning over the land. Now in the seventh year, Jehoiada, uh, who was going to be uh, one of the prophets, sent and brought the captains of the hundreds of the um, carites of the guard and brought them to, the, uh, to him in the house of the Lord. And then he made a covenant with them and he put them under oath uh, in the house of the Lord and showed them the king's son. So he commanded them saying, this is the thing you shall do. One third of you shall come in on the Sabbath and keep watch over the king's house. And one third also shall be at the gate, sure, and one third um, at the gate behind the guards shall keep watch over the house for defense. And two parts of you, even all who go out on the Sabbath, shall also keep watch over the house of the Lord for the king. So basically they got several hundred guys, they're going to break them all up into thirds to watch and to protect this child. They realize this child is going to be the king and they realize uh, Athalia would not appreciate this, so it has to be top, top secret. They're all underneath oath, and they're dividing up into shifts. It says, verse 8, Then you shall surround the king, each of you with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes within the rank shall be put to death, and be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. So the captains of hundreds did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded. So it's an interesting scene now. You're watching desperate times. God really wanted it to be set up so that a king would be the, the governor of all the politics and the priests could be separated to watch all of the uh, spiritual side of man. And yet you're watching the political side get to be so ugly that the priest is virtually taking over to protect the political side. And the priest now is commanding. He's starting to run the country, this Jehoiada. And he's starting to sit down and says, we've got to do something to take care of this child. So the priest is now commanding the military. An interesting scene. And each one of them took his men uh, who were to come in on the Sabbath and those who were to go out on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada, the priest. And the priest gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, each with his weapons in his hand, from the right side of the house to the left side of the house, by the altar and by the house around the king. Now it's interesting, when David had these uh, uh, weapons, we thought that when David had these shields and this armor, it's kind of unique, that David took all this and they were all solid gold. And he said, look, I'm going to array them up on my you know, wall. They're beautiful. And everybody would come in and see these really beautiful golden shields and say, wow, that looks beautiful. And we talked about um, a couple kings later when Rehoboam was in there. So David had Solomon, Solomon had Rehoboam, and then Jeroboam split against Rehoboam. So it's three generations later that Rehoboam is now taking the shields off the wall and he's using them for his defense. And it's amazing how David sat securely with God and said, these are ornaments, I don't need them, God protects me. Rehoboam started to run into problems and said, I need these for my protection. And now, once again, you're seeing how these shields and, and these spears are now used to save that very last little breath. And that's what it's coming down to, this last little breath, saying, we've got to hold on to this. And the priest is now dictating on which way it should go. 
so it says that the guard stood with his weapons in his hand to the right side of the house and to the left side of the house and by the altar and by the house around the king. And then he brought the king's son out and put the crown on him. So it's getting to be that time where they're going to say, enough's enough, we can only carry this for so long. It's time to let him out and to uh, expose that we have the son. He's got to be uh, seven years old at the time. Uh, and they gave him the testimony and they made him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and they said, long live the king. So Athalia now was now looking at this and she heard the noise of the guard and of the people and she came to the people in the house of the Lord and she looked and behold, the king was standing by the pillar according to the custom with the captains and the trumpeters besides the king and all the people of the land rejoiced and blew trumpets and then Athalia tore her clothes and she cried, treason, treason. So she's recognizing that here she was, she thought she had her throne all set up she didn't know about the child. They bring out the child and they're going, this is our king. And you could imagine she was some type of tyrant and that she did continue to bring in Baal worship. And we're going to have to look into a little bit of second king or chronicles here to embellish the story a little bit. But we know that she was a wicked woman and what she had done is she was just, you know, destroying the temple of God. She was, you know, taking wood and stone and pillars and beams and she was probably a tyrant that was not taking care of the people. And all the people said, look, let's give us back, you know, God's child that we're supposed to have. And she looks at this and said, it's treason. You're, you know, this is an act of war, life or death. And that's just what Jehoiada says. You're right. This is life or death. And then Jehoiada, the priest, commanded the captains of hundreds who were appointed over the army and said to them, bring her out between the ranks. And, uh, and whoever follows her put to death with the sword. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. And so they seized her. And when she arrived at the horse's entrance to the king's house, she was put to death there. So an interesting little side note for us that there was a queen of Israel. She reigned for six years. And uh, it wasn't a very pretty uh, ascension to the throne and it wasn't a very pretty exit either. But um, she threw herself up there. She was a queen. And, uh, and now all of a sudden she's being put to death for her atrocities. And uh, I guess you can't put too much mercy on the old black widow type lady that's going to kill her own kids in the first place. And, uh, and I guess if you've got to get the throne that bad, you have to be in power that bad that you're going to kill your own kids, uh, then... Uh, it's nowhere near the way God would have it to be. So verse 17, Then Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king. So here's a seven-year-old kid. He's now being uh, uh, trying to make a, a covenant between God and, and himself and the people that they should be the Lord's people. Also between the king and the people. So he's going to sit down as a seven-year-old and you can just kind of see that Jehoiada, the priest, is really pulling this seven-year-old string. And you can kind of sit down, and maybe if the seven-year-old's starting to have an intelligent thought, I mean, this kid's probably a year older than Amy, my daughter. I don't think I could uh, attribute a lot of wisdom to her and listen to what's being said. And obviously, Jehoiada, the priest, is saying, you're going to do what we tell you to do. Here's your new proclamation, king. And look, whoo, what a wise king he's proclaiming. And of course, if the kid had any thought, he would say, 
Uh, we need to get back to Jehovah, God, the true God of Israel. And so he's going to make a covenant and uh, that they should be the Lord's people. So verse 18, And all the people of the land went into the house of Baal, that false god, and tore it down, his altars and his images, and they broke it in pieces thoroughly. And they killed uh, Matin, the priest of Baal, and uh, before the altars, and the priest anointed, uh, appointed officers over the house of the Lord. So you could be asking yourself, where did these guys come? I thought Jehu killed them all. But Jehu killed all the priests that were in Israel up to the north. This was the people that were left worshiping Baal down to the south. And now this guy, uh, Jehoash, or Joash, he could be pronounced as, is going to be king in Judah. And just to save the amount of insanity, if you've been with us, there's been three or four Joashes or Jehoazes or things that are close to it. And sometimes they call them by their full name, their half name, and it depends who their father was and where they were coming. But it's weird. It's kind of like having, you know, George Bush. We had George Bush a little while ago, and then he didn't get elected, but yet we still have a president named George Bush. So couldn't you think some guy could be reading American history and said, oh, George Bush went to war, you know, the Gulf War, and then he backed away from it. And then, you know, all the people, you know, put in another president, Bill Clinton. And then George Bush went to war again. And some historian guy could say, how did George Bush do that? Well, there's George Bush, and then we would always know him as W, or I don't know how that works, but there's another guy in there. So in a sense, they got the same names over and over and over again, <laughs> and it, it, it really rips through your brain. And I really wanted to explain it all to you, but this is going to be another Jehoash is going to be uh, the king, and we'll just leave it at that. Sometimes you just got to look at the list. My, I got a Ryrie study, study Bible, and they got all the lists of the kings in order and the dates when they were kings, and it's got a whole timeline. And sometimes I just, I just got to go back and look at that and say, where are we with who? And who was the mother of where? And what did this have to do? But it is. It's like the third or fourth one down here. It's the second one for the king of the south. And there's a, been a couple kings of the north named the same name. Anyhow. We got the storyline. We know where we're going. He's going to sit down there and get the people to be back with God. He's going to rip out all the, uh, the priests of Baal. Verse 19, and he took the captains of hundreds uh, and the uh, Karites and the guards. I don't know what the Karites would be. They must be uh, good warrior type people. And all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord and came by the way of the gate of the guards to the king's house, and he sat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet. Isn't that nice? Just quiet. For they had put Athaliah to death with the sword at the king's house. So it says, Now Joash was seven years old when he became king. So in the seventh year of Jehu, going on up to the north, uh, Joash became king. He reigned uh, 40 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was, was uh, Ziba of uh, Beersheba. So obviously, Athaliah, uh, or uh, what was the guy's name with an A that was the king? And uh, he had another wife someplace, and that wasn't the same mother as this other woman, but so anyway, it's just telling you, different mothers, same father. So that's why maybe this lady didn't know about this kid being alive. It was a Ziba of Beersheba. And Joash did right in the sight of the Lord all his days in which Jehoiada the priest instructed him. So 
it's telling you pretty clearly that Jehoiada, the priest, was really pulling this guy's strings and teaching him the ways of the Lord. But nevertheless, it says, verse 3, that crime still exists. Only the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and burnt incense on the high places. And then Jehoash said to the priests, look, let's really start serious reform here. That's what he wants to do. He says, all the money of the sacred things which is brought into the house of the Lord is current money both the money of each man's assessment and all the money which any man's heart prompts him to bring into the house of the Lord, let the priests take it for themselves, each from his acquaintance, and they shall repair the damages of the house wherever any damage may be found. So he's going to start to bring about some reform and he's going to say, look, why don't we take the money and start to rebuild the house of the Lord? Let's rebuild the temple. Let's rebuild the things that uh, Athaliah was ripping apart. We need to restore these things. So he goes up to the priests and he says, you guys are collecting money. Take the money you're collecting and start to rebuild the temple. But it says in verse 6, but... It came about that in the 23rd year of King Joash, so it was a good stretch of time now, if he started out at seven, and I don't know when he made the proclamation, but now he's 23 years of age, or so it's been uh, something, 14 years of being king, something in there. And things are not getting done. Uh, the priests had not repaired the damages of the house. Then King Jehoash called to Jehoiada, the priest. And he goes, hey, look, priest, you raised me up. You told me what to do. I gave you free will to rebuild some stuff. What's going on here? And for the other priests, and he said to them, why do you not repair the damages of the house? Now, therefore, take no more money from your acquaintances, but pay it for the damages of the house. So the priests agreed that they should take no more money from the people, nor repair the damages of the house. So they're not going to get involved in this project. The, the people were giving money to the priests. The job was not getting done. And so what the priests decided to do is they said, look, cut us out of the loop. But Jehoiada the priest took a chest. And so as the priest turns around and says, this is what we're going to do. Instead of giving the money straight to the priest... It says, but Jehoiada the priest took a chest and he bore a hole in its lid and he put it beside the altar on the right side as one comes into the house of the Lord. Hmm, we've seen something like that before. And the priest who guarded the threshold put in all the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. And when they saw that there was much money in the chest, who the king's scribe, not the priest, the, the king is going to say, we'll count the money. Money's coming up short when the priests count the money. Why don't we have the politicians count the money? So the king is going to, the king's scribe and the high priest came up and, and tied it to bags and counted the money which was found in the house of the Lord. And they gave the money which was weighed out into the hands of those who did the work, who had the oversight of the house of the Lord, and they paid it out of the carpenters and of the builders who worked on the house of the Lord. 
and to the masons and the stone cutters, and for buying timber and hewn stones to repair the damages of the house of the Lord, and for all that was laid out for the house to repair it. But there were not made for the house of the Lord silver cups, snuffers, bowls, trumpet, uh, trumpets, any vessels of gold or vessels of silver from the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. For they gave that to those who did the work. And with it, they repaired the house of the Lord. Moreover, they did not require an accounting from the men in whose hands they gave the money to pay to those who did the work. For they dealt faithfully. The money from the guilt offerings and the money from the sin offerings was not brought into the house of the Lord. It was for the priests. So, is what happened is they would have different ways of collecting money. If you were in the temple back then, uh, they were supposed to take a census and they were never allowed to count the people because that was sinful. So as what they did is they charged everybody a half a shekel to come to the temple. And so you'd pay your half a shekel and then they could count the amount of money they have and then they'd know how many people were in church that day. So they could figure it out that way. Uh, and, and so that was a way of raising money. And there was other ways that you could raise money by a guilt offering, it says, right? And other people that would just want to give money to the priest. So they didn't want to cut out the priests, but notice what they're doing. The priests were sitting down there, used to pocket all the money, and nothing was getting done. And the king turns around and says, hey, you know, what's going on here? All this money, I told you to start to rebuild it. The place still looks like, you know, it's, uh, you know, in shambles, shambles, and, and, and why aren't you doing anything about it? And so he says, this is what we'll do. We'll, we'll put a box. We'll cut a hole in it. We'll put it out there. The king will cut the, you know, count the money. And then the king's going to turn around and just give it straight to the carpenters. And they'll get the job done. And we won't even worry about how it's going to get done. They are faithful. They're going to see the results of what they're doing. And everyone said, fine. And if you still wanted to give money to the priest, if you had a guilt offering or you wanted to do certain things, and said, hey, you know, the priest's up there laboring away. He has to eat, so somebody would want to give some food or a gift or something to the priest. You're still allowed to give to the priest. They weren't insulting them. They were just saying, we need a way to get this done. And, and obviously, you're watching a, a form of, 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 of that, that people, I, I guess the statement would be made that the king, who was raised by uh, the priest, was beginning to not even trust the priest. I think he was saying, look, I'm a seven-year-old kid. You raised me up from a pup. I did everything you told me to do. I want to worship the Lord. And there's a certain time in your life where you come of age and you start to look around and you're saying, gee, the thing that I really trusted in, there's some corruption here. In Jehoiada, uh, you know, I appreciate you. You saved my life. You put 300 guards around me to raise me up so that I could finally be, you know, a, a you know, seven-year-old boy. Well, now I'm a 23-year-old man. I'm starting to be a little bit alert to the things of the world, and I'm starting to see that there's some corruption. There's something, you know, the smell of something fishy in Denmark, as they say. There's something going on wrong here. And, and it's a sad story here. If we watch the rest of the chain of events, we'll build together the rest of the story as it starts to happen. It says, Then Hazel, king of Aram, came up and fought against Gath. All right, so that's one whole uh, country on the other side of the Jordan coming all the way across Israel and fighting the 
coast of the Mediterranean Sea, if you would. And so he's making a huge swath through Israel. And, uh, and Hazel was doing his job. He was the one that was appointed by God as well to be a butcherer. And uh, he's coming in he's, and he's setting his face to go up to Jerusalem. So now he's looking for war against Jerusalem. And Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred things that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, kings of Judah, had dedicated in his own sacred things and all the gold that was found among the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent them to Hazel, king of Aram. And then he went away from Jerusalem. So it's a sad day where he's now going to rely on his cash flow to bail him out. It's amazing how this relates to our Sunday sermons. But he's turning around and you're going to watch him lower the standard and says, look, I've got a problem. I'm not trusted in the Lord. I'm going to scrape up every dollar I got and pay off this guy so he doesn't kill me. And so sure enough, he pays him off and he turns around and he walks away. So put that in the back of your mind as we're watching him sign that he is now sitting down and falling apart. But it says now, and we're going to have to do some homework here, turn over to Second Chronicles, but it says, Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash, so he's going to be killed by his own men, at the house of Milo as he was going down to Silo. Uh, for Josachar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants struck him and he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. And Amaziah, his son, became king in his place. Interesting story. So this guy had started with such promise and now as he's old, you're going to find out that he's going to have a conspiracy of three or four guys here. They're going to rise up and kill him. What did he do that they would want to kill him for? We'll have to do some homework here in Second Chronicles 24, verse 25. I know you just like me to tell you, but it's more fun to read. Now remember, if you would, when we said the book of Kings and Chronicles, we said the Kings was a newspaper and the book of Chronicles was a newspaper. And you kind of get the newspaper story from the north and the newspaper story from the south. Sometimes you get a little bit more information on what's going on. Did I do that wrong? 2420? Yeah. It's a good wife. Now let's start with... Uh, Let's start with verse 14. We'll get the story. Well, let's start with verse 13. So the workmen labored and they repaired the work, progressing in the hands, and they restored the house of God according to the specifications and strengthened it. And when they had finished it, they brought the rest of the money before the king to Jehoadai, and, he, and it was made into utensils for the house of the Lord. So now he's even getting into some other stuff, uh, into the service of the burnt offerings. Now, when Jehoiada reached a ripe old age, he died. He was 130 years old at his death. That's pretty good, right? Lived 130. That's a ripe old age. Where's Tom Ford? Tom Ford always believes you've got to live to be 80. If you, you die before 80, you got robbed, right? 
But uh, so he'd be happy here. 130 years old at his death. And they buried him in the city of David along with the kings because he had done well in Israel and to God and his house. So this is the priest. The priest that raised the king did a really good job. Okay? But after the death of Jehoiada the priest, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king and the king listened to them. So these are some other guys come in. So Jehoiada, when he was the priest, he took counsel to the king and told the king what to do. I think the king turned around and looked at him and said, well, there's some corruption with you. I don't really trust you the way that I once trusted you. But now you're dead. And after he's dead and there is this hint of doubt, other counselors come in and start to get him swayed away from this God thing. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, and the king listened to them, and they abandoned the house of the Lord. Give up on God a little bit. So Jehoiada, the faithful priest, wasn't there, even though there was a hint of doubt in him. The God of their fathers and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem uh, for this, their guilt. Yet he sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, and he stood above the people. So now Jehoiada's son, he's got a son named Zechariah, could even be his grandson at 130 years of age, could even be his great-grandson, or could even be his great-great-great-great-grandson at 130. But anyway... This Zechariah guy, and he's not the author of the book of Zechariah, and he's not uh, the other Zechariah that we've already spoke of before, but this is another Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest. And he stood above the people, and he said to them, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not, uh, and do not prosper? You're struggling here. It's because you rejected God. Because you have forsaken the Lord, He has also forsaken you. So here he is, after his dad dies, granddad dies, there's this vacuum again, and he's going to stand up and speak the word of truth, and yet they're going to conspire against him and the command of the king, and they stoned him to death. So Joash says, shut up, and they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. And thus Joash the king did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him, but he murdered his son and he, uh, and as he died, he said, May the Lord see and avenge. Those were this son, uh, son's last words as he's dying there. And now it came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him and they brought to Judah and Jerusalem, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army and da 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 da. And then lo and behold, that's why they conspired, they conspired against him, and then they ended up killing this guy, Joash, because he ended up killing Jehoiada's son. So you're with us? Life of Joash. What can we learn from Joash? A lot of lessons there. We're watching somebody that uh, really, if you look at, he was trying to do the right thing. He looked at the priests. He saw corruption in the priesthood right? Because they weren't finishing doing it. He said, money, money has to be given out effectively and correctly. So therefore, 
uh, I might as well do it myself and give it out to the masons, the carpenters, and the people that are going to actually do the job. I can trust them, right? We don't have to ask for an accounting of what they're doing. But with inside of Joash in his heart, he's saying, I can't trust God anymore. And now that the, you know, Jehoiada the priest is finally dead and he took care of me and I appreciate it for him, I'm giving up on God. And he started to turn away from God at such a point that, you know, Jehoiada's son comes up and says, man, you can't do this. And they said, quiet, I can do this. I'm going to turn away from God to such a point that I'm going to tell you to be quiet and I'll even kill you to the point. And when people see that the king's killing the priest, then the people are going to revolt and kill the king. And that's all that's happened here is because there's shades of doubt, listen to this, because money wasn't handled appropriately. And, and when it comes to our dollars and cents, uh, we have a tendency to really see who and what we trust and what we're doing with our lives. And, and when it comes to a, a church, a church having to deal with finances, uh, we have to be above reproach or else it's got to put shades of doubts on people on what and how they're going to trust God. And it's a reflection of the same thing. And here they're saying, look, we're going to put a, a box in the back, we'll put a hole in it, and we want people to be able to say, look, the king is going to uh, uh, count it, and nobody's here to steal anything, it's there for a good reason and a good purpose, and people gave so that every single day that box was stuffed filled. They had plenty of money. It's because the corruption of the priests, and the priest that even turned around says, we're going to try and take care of the king, yet when people see something, they sense something, they walk away. A breach in trust sometimes can never be repaired. It's a very fine line when someone breaks your trust. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you've looked at somebody and trusted somebody. You went and experienced them and you watched them go through a trial and tribulation and they failed miserably. And it seems like after you've experienced them being a failure, you can forgive them. And you can absolve them and move on, but that trust, once that trust is broken, it's very hard to establish the relationship the way that it once was. It seems like the rose-colored glasses are off. And, and it is hard to, to work with people. I know it's been hard for some people to even look at me. Some people, some people think, oh, that's Pastor Dave. He can walk on water. He taught a great sermon. And especially when I started the ministry and things were happening, you say, well, you know, what you can do from the pulpit is one thing, but, you know, if I'm going to be a goofball and do something goofy, I'm out bowling with somebody and I'm laughing and joking and I say something, you know, off color or something weird and people go, ooh, Dave, I can't believe you said that. And then it's like that. I've seen it in people where all of a sudden they go, I can't sit and listen to your sermons anymore because I'm thinking of you out bowling and, you know, saying something stupid. And, and you want to say, look, I'm a human being. I'm just like everyone else. You don't want to put any one human above another human in one sense. But in another sense, it, it has taught me the value of respecting people and the value of saying what I do is very important, that we have to have an accountability of the things that happen. And we do. We have a box in the back. Money goes in there. I don't know who puts money in, and I don't want to know. There's a treasurer that counts it. He doles it all out. He takes care of every single penny, and it's been that way for, you know, 12 years of ministry that somebody's been, you know, looking at things. Maybe not that long. For a while I had to count the money, but... 
Then again, that was when I was the only one putting money in. But you know, when you're small. But you go, no. There's always been a generous amount of people in church, but there has to be a sense of, of fair play, a sense of saying, what happens to the money? Where does it go? Is, is things being done appropriate with it? Is it inappropriate? What's happening to these things? And we have a tendency to see where it is, and it's, it's a, a, a shame. Listen to this. It's a shame when the church looks at the money and says, this is our money. We'll take with it and do with it as we want with our money. We're accountable to no one for it. And it's a shame when the church turns into a business and an industry and it just starts to pocket all the cash and says, we'll do what we want with it. And that's what the priests were doing. People would come up and say, yeah, you know, you know f- forgive me, Father, I have sinned. You know, I, I lusted after, you know, my friend's, you know, vineyard. And, and the priest would say, well, you need to, you know, pay me 50 bucks and I'll absolve you of your sins, right? And the guy goes, okay, and here's the 50 bucks. The priest goes, thanks, you know, that's 50 bucks for me. And the next guy comes up, you know, and they're just taking all the money and pocketing it. And they, they were supposed to do that, right? But if they had any integrity, they would have used the money to put back into the people. They would have put it into a source that something that would have been fixed or, or put back together right, that the, something tangible the people could see with their money. And, and hence, that, that doubt creeps in. And, and, and what the priests were doing, listen to this, right? When, 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 when the church starts to steal money from the people and not be faithful with it, A, it brings a, a breach of doubt between the people and the church, but doesn't it make the church just as much the black widow as Athalia was? What are you doing if, if you're taking your sheep and, and you're bringing them in and then once they give to you, you're just sitting down there chewing them up and spitting them out? There's no difference between the church being the black widow. There's no difference than what Athalia did. And if we could look at Athalia and say that's disgusting that she would kill her own children, and yet that's what churches do all the time. They're just raping the people. They're just taking advantage of people. They're taking money straight out of people's pockets, and they're laughing about it. And it's bringing in such a strong breach of trust, and it's allowing people to sit down and to say, I cannot trust, I cannot trust the church with my money. And that's sad when, when you say, you know, I, we can trust a carpenter, we can trust a mason a lot more with our money than I could with the priest counting the money. And when people have that perspective, and I believe that was a, a, a mass perspective of a lot of people that have distrust for the church. Gee, I take my kids, I send them off to church camp. My little kid's getting molested while he's at church camp. You think I can't even trust, you know, the priest with my kids? What an outrage, what a cry of disgust to sit down and to see how people really are walking away from organized religion in masses. Somebody gave me a newspaper. Was it? I think it was Pam Brown. Gave somebody, people hand me stuff as they're walking out the door. Was it you, Betty, gave me a newspaper on Sunday? No. Um, someone gave me the, the front page of the uh, faith section of the dispatch from Thursday or whatever it was. And they have this, you know, uh, new religion of everybody who's a druggie, you know, is now going to church and, you know, this church down in Florida. But this is just this little thing. It's, you know, you can be a Buddhist, you can be, you know, homosexual, you can be whatever you want and just come and hear all about God. 
And it's really sad to see how the church is walking away from its mandates of talking about repentance. And so they got this big article and she wanted me to read it. And, and it is sad where the church then, it just says, whatever goes, and then it, it breaks the trust. But if you looked at the paper and then down at the bottom of the paper, it says, you know, the, the, the Catholic Church is shutting down, you know, 12 more, you know, parishes than it thought. So really there's 87 parishes that are being shut down this year compared to whatever. And you go, what a sad commentary. You know, here's the church saying, do whatever you want, you know, just, and people are leaving it in droves. And there is a new, you know, non-denominational movement where people can sit down and say, hey, uh, I'd rather trust the church and put my money in a church where I can see it being in the church instead of having my money go to the church and then it goes to this huge denominational thing that who knows where the money goes and then the money's paying for some lawsuit for something. And people are like, well, what happens with, you know, in a denomination where all the money just goes every which way and it just goes into a big corporate office and then gets swirled around into into where and it is where where we want to be uh we strive to be a place where people can trust and people can say this is our church this is our home we we strive together and it's because of very things that are like this that says hey they got the box with a hole in it and they, they they're faithful with it they're accountable for it and 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 it is it's sad when people lose the trust of their church and if if you look at what's happening here there's a lot of people in our community that, that don't trust the church, the church at large. And they go, I don't want to go to church. It's a bunch of thieves, a bunch of people that are after my money. I, I think it's going to be something really good. I was part of church XYZ, and then I found out the pastor was doing, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, and now my heart's broken. And inside of them, they're saying, I, I don't even know if I could really trust God anymore. God, you told me I should be part of the church. I went all excited this church took care of me and it was there for me when i was little and raised me up and then as soon as i get to look around to see what's going on there's problems and corruption and and it's sickening and our job our mandate is to be a church to say look we're we're not the best at anything but and sometimes it's what we don't do it's it's us trying to say lord we want to be faithful we want to be the one church hopefully and hopefully there's many churches in columbus that is at least saying, look, there's a reason for you to trust the Lord. We're changed lives and we're people that we're trying to do. And it's very, very important. And I really think that the lesson of Joash is to say, here's some kid who said, look, I just did what you told me to do. I trusted you. And now all of a sudden things weren't getting done. And when if you're not around then, then I'm going to sit down and backslide and walk away. And a lot of people do that. They say, well, you know, I went to the church and the pastor's having an affair. Why can't I? Why can't I go out and do everything else? And it's a sad, terrible state of affairs. It's what we're trying to stop. It's what the country needs to be in order for it to have any hope for the future is that the church, the pulpit, has got to stand up and deliver the rock-solid message and to be fair. Amen? So I'm done beating on the pulpit. How about you guys? You want to beat on the pulpit? Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that we would just learn the lessons of uh, Joe... Joe Ash, Father, here, and that we would uh, keep our hearts straight and true, Father, that you are our source, Father, and that uh, everyone will let us down, Father. It says, though, that every man be found a liar, yet God be true. And I do pray, Father, that we would cling to, cleave to you and you alone, that you would work in our lives, Father, to uh, change us, Father. And I do pray, Father, that uh, we would uh, uh, treat the band of trust that we have with honor 
and that we would work hard to establish a witness in the community, Father, and that we would be honorable people on the job, uh, throughout work, in our family, Father, so that our children would uh, be raised and watch us, Father, and want to emulate us, to be like us, and to follow after us, and not as soon as they are of age to run as far as they can from our faith and from our beliefs. Father, we want to be a good witness. We want to be accountable. We want to be uh, accurate with the things that we're doing, Father. Help us to be wise with our money, Father, and to uh, be a faithful steward with the small things, Father, and you will entrust to us many more things. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.